Turn with me to Psalm 22, please. Shouldn't be hard to find since we've been in Psalm 23 the last few weeks. Some of you know my youngest daughter, Emily. She was here in the church for a few years. And when Emily was about four years old, some of us parents in our church were doing a study on discipline called, you'll love this title, Making Children Mind Without Losing Yours. Pretty clever, Dr. Kevin Lehman. It actually was a pretty helpful study. And he was teaching a principle called reality discipline, that it doesn't always have to be spanking or always time out, but rather how to let our children suffer immediate real-world consequences for their sinful choices, kind of like God does with us often, right? Well, one morning, Emily was with me, and Joyce and, and the other two kids were off at school, and I needed to get to the office, and I said, Emily, get your coat on. We need to go. Well, she had developed a little habit of kind of ignoring Daddy because she was the baby and she was really cute, and, and so she just would keep playing or maybe disappear into her room. And this morning, I thought, I'm going to try a technique from this study. So when she ignored me and went into her room, I went out the front door, loudly shut the door so she could hear it, locked the deadbolt, and then stood where she couldn't see me. Pretty soon I hear little steps running down the hall, and then I hear crying and screaming from inside the house. And I'm standing outside the door, my heart is being ripped out, because in her little four-year-old mind, Daddy just left her, and she's trapped in that house alone. And after a few seconds, I opened the door, I comforted her, I explained you need to obey daddy. And you know what? She never did that again. From then on, when I said, Emily, get your coat on, she had her coat on and she was at the door waiting. Now, I'm not here tonight to talk about parenting technique, okay? I'm here to talk about that feeling when Emily thought daddy left her. And I want to talk about those seasons when some of us feel that way about God. We feel God has abandoned us. God has shut the door and He no longer hears my panicked cries. It might be an extended season of physical illness or chronic pain that feels unbearable. It might be an endless exhausting battle with unrelenting depression. It might be feeling trapped in a what seems a hopelessly broken relationship or the opposite. It might be the dream of a relationship that is slowly dying, something that was hoped for and feels like it will never be fulfilled. It might be guilt and shame over sin, a sin you hate. You're using the means of grace to fight it, and it feels like you make no progress. Or, dear friends, it may someday soon be the painful reality of unjust imprisonment as persecution intensifies. But if you ever have a miserable season where you wonder if God is done helping you, He's deaf to your cries, the Psalms once more have something to say to you. So let's look at Psalm 22 tonight. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouths at me as a ravening lion and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him for help, He heard from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows, vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and will be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations." All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before Him, even He who cannot keep His soul alive. Posterity will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has performed it. Now, I would imagine this psalm is not quite as familiar to you as Psalm 23 that Anthony's been preaching. Now, obviously, there are some lines here, there are some phrases here that jumped off the page at you, didn't they? Prophetic words that were fulfilled at the cross. And next week, we're going to look at the ultimate meaning of this psalm, in Christ, and look at the rich gospel realities here. But I pray you won't get frustrated with me tonight, that you won't leave here thinking, 
I don't think there was enough gospel in that sermon. I, I don't think we looked at Christ enough. We will find gospel at the end, I promise, if the Lord allows. But first we're going to spend some time sitting with David in sackcloth and ashes. Lest we run too quickly to the fulfillment in Christ and we miss David's own experience, tonight we will look at the immediate meaning of this psalm to David and all the saints who ever suffer a sense of abandonment from God. And in fact, that is the first of my three points. I've divided the psalm into three points, feeling abandoned, facing death, and final praise. Feeling abandoned. And here I have four sub-points. First, we look at the shocking silence in verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. And we don't know the exact circumstances of this psalm. It's quite likely that it was written as he was on the run from Saul. Perhaps at a moment where he is nearly caught. Death seems almost certain. He writes like a righteous man who is facing execution from wicked enemies. Which is a pretty fair description of what Saul was trying to do to David, right? You talk about a difficult season. Most scholars agree that David probably was running from Saul for up to ten years. Pause and think about a ten-year season of your life. Seems like I've lived back here in Virginia for quite a while, but it hasn't been 10 years yet. It'll only be eight years in July. David is a righteous man. He treats Saul with integrity and respect, and yet for 10 long years, running for his life in the desert wilderness, hiding in caves. I've driven through this wilderness in Israel with my friend, Pastor David Zidok. I didn't know you could see the Dead Sea from here. But besides the Dead Sea, all you see are barren hills of rock and sand as far as you look. Do you suppose during those ten years, David was always filled with valiant faith? Do you think every day David was skipping through the desert, strumming on his lyre, singing praise songs to God? You think there were days he was too numb to move? Days he couldn't stop weeping? Days he felt paralyzed by fear or the blackness of despair? These are deeply painful questions in the opening verses. Why have you forsaken me? God, why is there no attempt to save me? Why are you not listening to my groaning? By the way, that word groaning in verse 2 is literally roaring. Same as the lions later on in the psalm. Why are you not listening to my roaring? This is intense anguish. This is intense desperation. David is not sighing as he writes this. He is screaming at heaven. David is not silent by night or by day, but God is. 
God, I never stop crying, but you don't answer. Now let's pause David's pain for just a second and point out another remarkable example of God's humility. God owes us no explanation, does he? And yet he allows us in the Psalms, it shows us that he allows us to vent, to express our confusion and listen to David's confusion as he struggles to hope. And that's our second subpoint, struggling to hope. And he's wrestling with three things. In verse 1, wrestling with God's covenant. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, but, but your covenant, your covenant love, God, my God, three times in verses 1 and 2. My God, the Old Testament equivalent of our Father in heaven. God, you are my God. You have bound yourself to me in a covenant relationship. And a good biblical counselor would say, yes, David, when you don't understand what God is doing, comfort yourself with his covenant love for you. That's good counsel. That's true. But it can also be a two-edged sword that cuts the other way. God, you have pledged to be a provider and a protector for your people. Why are you not following through on that promise with me? Why have you abandoned me now? And then in verse 3, wrestling with God's character. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. God, God, but your character, God... You are holy. You're nothing like fickle men. You are pure and praiseworthy and faithful and trustworthy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. Why? Because they can find no flaw in your character. And again, our biblical counselor says, Yes, David, when you don't understand what God's doing, comfort yourself by thinking on His character. And that's good counsel. I would give that counsel. That's true. But the blade can cut the other way. God, it doesn't feel like you're acting consistent with your character in my case. It looks like you're abandoning one who trusts in you. You're allowing evil to triumph. And then in verses 4 and 5, he wrestles with the history of God's history with his people. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, in you they trusted and were not disappointed. God, God, but your history with your people, God. God, I look in your word and and I see our fathers trusting in you and I see your deliverance. I see arcs and plagues and parting seas and city walls crumbling. And again, our biblical counselor says, yes, David, when you don't understand what God's doing, comfort yourself by looking at the history of His care for His people. Good counsel. True. Listen to it. But in those dark moments, the blade can cut the other way. God, they trusted and you delivered them. I trust you and I'm despised. 
God, they trusted and they were not disappointed. I'm trusting and I feel forgotten. Do you see the tug of war in his mind and in his heart? God, your behavior in this situation doesn't seem to match what I know of your covenant and your character and your history of dealing with your people. And it would be absolutely wrong to go to God in an accusatory tone. But again, the Psalms show us it's okay to be honest with God in our wrestling. To plead His covenant, plead His character, plead His history with His people, lay bare all our confusion and all our pain, and then cry out for Him to act. But adding to the shock of God's silence and intensifying his struggle to hope, David endures third, scorned by men. Scorned by men in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. It's bad enough to feel abandoned by God. But it's even worse when you're surrounded by mocking enemies. Or sometimes even misguided friends who misinterpret your circumstance. Sort of like Job's friends. In David's case, though, this is coming more from self-righteous enemies who sneer at him, who stick out the lip, who shake their head. And look at the two things they mockingly question. The first part of verse 8. Commit yourself to the Lord and let Him, capital H, God, deliver Him. What are they questioning? David's faith in God. David, if you really committed yourself to him, if you really trusted God, he'd deliver you. David, God is silent because your faith is defective. And then the second part of verse 8, let him rescue him because he delights in him. Oh, questioning David's worth to God. David, You're not worthy of God's love. That's why He's not rescuing you. David, you're such a sinner. You're not worthy of His love or His help. And David, like us, sometimes wonders, are they right? Are they right about me? Maybe I am nothing but a maggot, the lowest life form worthy of nothing but disgust. And we have an enemy whispering that in our ear, don't we? Your faith is so pathetic. No wonder God doesn't help you. No wonder He doesn't even hear you. He doesn't love you. You don't deserve His help. Dear struggling friend, resist Him. Muster what little strength you have left and rebuke His lies with gospel truth. And with the next breath, in fact, we see David still trusting. Verse 9, Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. 
You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. In ancient times, and certainly in many places of the world, childbirth was extremely uncertain. And David says, God, as a helpless infant leaving my mother's womb, you preserved my life. Where are you now? God, you gave me life. You grew my faith. God, I have trusted in you from childhood. Why would you abandon me now? But despite his confusion, despite the mocking of his enemies, David keeps crying out for help. He's trusted God thus far. He's not going to stop now. Verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And then look at verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help. Hasten to my assistance. In verse 11, there are none to help. In verse 19, he calls God, you my help. David dares to hope for a last second deliverance in the face of death. And that's our second main point. Facing death. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here, just enough to drive home David's desperation. Verses 11 to 13, the description of his deadly enemies. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. And then down to verse 16, adding to the imagery, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Describes his deadly enemies as three animals. Bulls. Well, I don't know if you've ever been up close to a bull. They are big. And they are powerful. And they are dangerous. Their hooves and their horns are deadly. And then lions. I read a... a, a, a quote from a game ranger in in Africa, and he said, you know, I never heard a tourist say, hmm, that lion wasn't as big as I expected. They're huge, and they're savage, and their jaws and their claws are deadly. And then there are dogs. And folks, this isn't Fluffy the Poodle, okay? Dogs in the ancient Middle East and even today were not so much house pets. Okay, they're scavengers. They hang around the trash dump. Or in ancient times, they hung at battlefields and execution sites. And normally they were scared of a man unless they sense he's dying. And then they nip and bite at the limbs. We see that in verse 16. Until they sense he's too weak to defend himself. And then they finish him off. It's fitting imagery for different forms of suffering, isn't it? There are some seasons of suffering that stomp us into the dust like a bull 
and just leave us laying there stunned. There are some seasons of suffering that savagely tear us to pieces like a lion. And there are some seasons of suffering that just relentlessly nip and bite until we're too tired to stand. And as David describes his deadly enemies, he also describes his own dying hope. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. If you've been through a time of intense fear or pain or despair, you can relate to David's description, can't you? My heart is melted like wax in the desert heat. My strength has seeped out of me like water into the sand. I am so weak and the fear is so consuming I can barely walk like my limbs are out of joint. I can barely talk. The fear has sucked all the moisture from my mouth and my tongue is three times too big. And I am as fragile as a piece of broken pottery. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Perhaps malnourished either from fleeing or from fasting, he is skin and bones. And you know, when we talk about somebody losing everything, don't we sometimes say, <laughs> they've got nothing left but the shirt on their back. But even that has been taken. His enemies are so sure of his death, they're now gambling for his clothes. But worst of all, the end of verse 15 and you lay me in the dust of death. David fears that God has given him over to death. The enemies surround him. They're ready to trample and tear him to pieces. But ultimately, it is his God who has doomed him to die. And nevertheless, there is one final cry for help. Verse 19, But you, O Lord, be not far off, O oh, you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. And in the middle of verse 21, we suddenly see rescue. From the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. And this leads us to our third point, David's final praise. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised. Remember, he was despised. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. He heard. And this is what we all hope for, right? Sure, that long season of seeming abandonment is miserable. And then God shows up at the last second and delivers. And what's your response when that happens? 
Probably the same as David, right? In verse 22, you rush to tell your church family. You rush to post it on the realm, all that God has done for you. Or in verse 30, you relish telling your children and your grandchildren how God rescued you from a hopeless situation. But have you ever heard of or maybe seen a movie with an alternate ending? You know, they, they release the movie in theaters with one ending, but when that movie comes out on DVD, you can choose an alternate ending. And David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, who drew strength from this psalm on the cross, was not delivered from death at the last second. He was delivered through death. And that has been the experience of many of his followers. Well, eventually, ultimately, all of us. My dad didn't get a miraculous deliverance from cancer at the age of 45. Pastors in China remain in prison until their death. Christians in the Middle East are not rescued from bombs or beheadings. William Cooper, who wrote the hymn that we opened with tonight, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, who wrote one of my all-time favorite hymns, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, was not delivered from his severe depression before death. So what then? Can we still finish David's psalm with final praise, even if we are not delivered before death, but delivered through death? I am here tonight as a fellow pilgrim. I do not know what lies around the next bend of life's road. But may I suggest four ways we can still apply David's words of final praise, even if deliverance doesn't come before death in our dark trial. Did you notice something about David's praise? Now, of course, next week we're going to look at the prophetic fulfillment in Christ. I can't wait to get there. But notice tonight, his praise is not self-focused. It's full of language like brethren, assembly, congregation. As a shepherd, he can't stop thinking about the sheep. As a future king, his focus is on the encouragement of God's people. And I think we can find great benefit and blessing from his focus on others as he finishes his psalm. So my first application, we can, we must draw strength from God's people. In verse 25, from you comes my praise. God, you enable me to praise you. Where? In the great assembly. Even Jesus wanted his friends close as he fought that final battle in the garden. And as a general rule, we know that despair deepens in solitude, doesn't it? And yet still, in that dark night, we're tempted to solitude. I'm emotionally exhausted. I, I don't have the energy to be around people. I'm ashamed of my despair. I'm supposed to be stronger than this. 
And you and I both know that's when we need other saints the most, isn't it? The book of Hebrews was written to frightened Jewish Christians facing increasing persecution. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22, probably look at it next week, speaking of Christ's incarnation. But a little bit later in chapter 3, he says this, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our helpful writer says, one guard against giving up, one help in holding fast is to encourage one another. Happens to be my second application. Even in the midst of our own season of discouragement, we can still encourage God's people. Verse 22. Again, David's focus on others. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. I can still remember in one of my darkest moments in Zambia, when God didn't answer our cries, when God didn't show up in power, in that moment, and I'm reeling in confusion. I'm asking all the questions David starts this psalm with. And I remember looking up and seeing my daughter Alicia's face in, in the front window of our vehicle. And that was such a mercy from God in that moment. Because I thought, is she going to see Daddy lay down and quit? Am I going to communicate to my daughter in this moment that faith in God is fruitless? Dear saint, when you feel like just giving up, I, I beg you, look around at your brothers and sisters. Are you going to tell them by your words or by your actions that all this is false, that following Christ is just not worth it? And you might say to me, well... It feels fake. It feels fake to encourage others when I'm battling despair. Really? First of all, you're not encouraging them with your feelings. and You're not encouraging them with your experience. You're encouraging them with the sure promises of God. And there's nothing fake about that. And second, is it fake when soldiers in a trench who are about to attack the enemy, when they encourage one another to be brave, when they are terrified and trying not to puke? That's not fake. That's what we call real courage and camaraderie. No, it's not fake to tell our brothers and sisters, even when we are struggling, take courage, brother. Take courage, sister. Keep fighting. And when we're battling that darkness within, have you ever found at least some relief when you take your eyes off of yourself and your situation and instead see the need of others? 
The Apostle Paul and Samuel Rutherford and John Bunyan wrote from lengthy imprisonments to encourage others. Even William Cooper, in the midst of a depression that was sometimes suicidal, wrote hymns to encourage the faith of others. You say, yeah, but I'm not them. No, (laughs) probably nobody's going to put the label giant of the faith on us. But that doesn't mean that our simple little struggle to endure by faith cannot have a meaningful impact on fellow saints in our little sphere. Encourage one another. Third, we can still claim the gospel promises by faith. Now, I know in that dark night of the soul, it might be hard to see, but have you in prior days seen the fruit of grace in your life? That you are trusting only in Christ? That you are turning from your sin? Have others seen the reality of Christ in you? And the Spirit's work in you? Then despite what you feel, and whether He delivers you from this season of suffering before death or through death, there is still strong reason to trust His gospel promises. And despite His silence in this season, He has not despised your affliction. You can still claim, verse 24, For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him for help, He heard. Please go study your Savior in John 11. He did not despise Lazarus or Mary, or Martha, and He doesn't despise you. He loved them, and He loves you. He was not unmoved by their affliction, and He's not unmoved by yours. And He does not delay any longer than absolutely necessary for His good purpose. Or let me ask it this way. Have you been called? Have you been shown the beauty of Christ and irresistibly drawn to Him? Have you been justified? Have you been declared innocent and robed with the righteousness of Christ through your faith in His saving work? Then though you feel forsaken for a while, you have every assurance that you will finally be glorified. And you can ask with confidence, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tuesday night, last night, we were studying Colossians 3 with some of the guys at RU. Looking at verses three or 4 and 5, where Paul says, Your life, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Do you hear that? 
Your ultimate reality is not the circumstance you see. Your ultimate reality is hidden safely and securely in the Lord Jesus Christ on heaven's throne. And one day, that reality will be revealed. And that's our final application. We can still anticipate enjoying Christ's final victory. Verse 26 of Psalm 22, to the end, The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before Him, even He who cannot keep His soul alive. Posterity will serve Him, and it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has performed it. I know today may be really dark, but a day is coming when there is no more affliction, nothing but abundant life forever. A day is coming when there's no more prosperity for some and poverty for others, but all of us fully satisfied at the King's table forever. A day is coming when all His worshipers are finally gathered from every nation, every family on earth, and for eternity we will never get bored boasting in who He is and what He has done for us. And oh, I pray, That the anticipation of that eternal enjoyment in His final victory will be strong in us. And it will sustain us through seasons where we wonder if He's forgotten us. He may not deliver in this life the way we hope. But dear saint, He has not abandoned you. And as we're going to see next week, Christ has endured being forsaken by the Father so that we never will. He has already walked that road of shameful suffering and He walked it, Hebrews says, sustained by the joy of sharing His victory with us. So let's fix our eyes on Him. Let's strive to honor Him as we follow by faith, as faltering as our steps sometimes are. Let's pray. Oh, Father... For those who do not know you, this is the best it will ever be, this fallen world, this suffering and sin. But God, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit you opened our eyes to see 
our sin for what it was and the Savior you have provided. And you have drawn our hearts to him. And with Peter, we say, where else can we go? God, please help us to fix our eyes on him, to follow by faith that he might be honored by our belief in his word and in his work. And God, please hasten the day when we see him face to face. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.